Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. In 1989, civil war broke out in Liberia. Fighting and instability ravaged the West African country for the next 14 years. A quarter of a million people lay dead and millions had fled into neighboring countries. Men were on the front lines of Liberia's civil wars, but it was a woman who led the effort to end the fighting. The women of Liberia are serious about peace, and we will continue our activities until we have peace. Lema Bowie brought together Muslim and Christian women to stage protests and sit-ins across the country. In 2002, she confronted Liberia's president, Charles Taylor, telling him that Liberia's women were sick and tired of the fighting, hunger, and rape. After a peace agreement was signed in August 2003, Lema set out to help rebuild Liberia and rehabilitate its people. We're heading to the fifth floor. Okay. In 2006, she co-founded the Women, Peace, and Security Network Africa, which promotes women's participation and leadership in peace and security governance. And in 2011, she won the Nobel Peace Prize. Are we going to do pictures? Is it video? Just, no, just audio. Because this is me. <laughs> you look great, Lima. Today, Lema is founder and president of the Bowie oh, Peace Foundation Africa. She joins me in New York. I'm good, how are you? Can I hug you? Sure. Lema, the first and second Liberian civil wars lasted roughly 14 years. You were just 17 when the war first erupted in 1989, and 31 when you started protesting. What prompted you to do so? Where did you start? I think I cannot talk about starting without talking about my socialization, because I think the two are connected. I was socialized in a very tiny community, not far from the capital. And in that community, we had maybe 12, 13 of Liberia's 16 ethnic groups, Christian, Muslims, everyone lived together in harmony. When there was the Ramadan, we ate with the Muslims. When there was Christmas, there was sharing. That was my socialization. And then all of a sudden, a split seconds, you have war. And people start to run from place to place. But then you start to hear the rhetorics of war. And the rhetorics of war is division. Oh, you can't interact with that ethnic group. You can't eat from that group. You can't. Those people are evil. They're killers. They're like this. And then in a 17-year-old mind, you're confused. And in that confusion, because no one is helping you process anything, so you're angry. So I think it, that's where it started from. I carry a deep-seated sense of anger in me for a long time, maybe for 14 years, and I couldn't find an outlet. Eventually, I knew that by working with women, working with youth, working with different groups of people will help me um, ease that anger. So that's where it started from. Liberian women have long suffered from marginalization and gender inequality, yet women were the ones who influenced the eventual peace process in Liberia in a way that men could not. What accounts for the larger number of women who then followed you and got involved? Well, in as much as we've always had, quote unquote, a culture of marginalization, Liberian women are very strong. And I tell people that we have a, a, a country that is built on a very strong foundation of double standards. So let me give you an example of the double standards. So when we were protesting peace, Everyone hailed us, including the Chief Justice of the Republic of Liberia at the time. 
And then there was the sign of the peace agreement. So we go to this dinner, which was like a huge dinner. And then someone asked me, so what's next? Oh, we'll continue to protest so that we can make sure women get their voices in the political space. And then he walked over to me and said, young lady, you did a very good job. You did very well. But don't you think it's time now for you to go back home and take care of your children? Or with this new form theme, you could resurrect some of the orphanages that the women in old used to do or some of the children's home. So he, he, he had a very nice way of saying, go back to where you belong. Go back to where our history situated you. We don't want you in politics. So that's the nation that we have. You talked about Muslim and Christian women coming together. And the movement that you started during the second civil war in Liberia was notable for bringing those two groups who were often at odds together. What went into building a viable coalition for peace? Exactly as you said, when we started our movement, we went back to do an analysis of the war in Liberia. We started one ethnic group, I mean, one warring group, and then it went to two and three and four. And if you look at the genesis of all of the warring groups, they were either formed around ethnicity, different ethnic group, class, or religious groups. And so if these people were exploiting the divide or the differences that we have, our unique differences to divide the country, we wanted to exploit that to bring the country back to peace. So it, we were deliberate in that. We didn't want to start a movement only for Christian women. Then it made it easy for the Muslim women to say, see, or it made it easy for the, those who are operating out of those warring groups that were predominantly Muslims to say, you see, they don't even have our women there. We didn't want it to be only elite. We wanted to be indigenous people along with the elite in society. We didn't want it to be just educated women. We wanted women who did not go to school. So we were very deliberate that we knew for 14 years divisions of that had taken place in Liberia was based on our unique differences, and we wanted to use that as a means of bridging peace. So when we started, we had to bring start from the ground zero, building a movement based on our understanding of what the other was. And this is something that we don't necessarily do in our world today. We act on our ignorance. We act on what we think the other is about. So the first thing we did was to bring the Christian women first to say to them, let's look at what you have. What are your strengths? Then we also wanted to look at the, what they taught Islam was. So we had to deal with all of those. And the next day we brought the Muslim women in and went through the same thing. On the third day, we brought the group together. It was in that city that someone asked, you know, as people were trying to still push the division card, someone asked if a gun was fired in this room right now, would a bullet be able to pick out a Christian or a Muslim? Can the bullet pick and choose? If you lose your child to war, is the Muslim woman's pain different from the Christian woman's pain? And it was a resounding no. And that was the moment where we brought it all together. How did the men, both those in power like then-President Charles Taylor and those who opposed his regime, respond to your movement? Well, it, it was very interesting to see that when we started, 
um, we got very, very negative comments from both sides of the aisle. But as the campaign persisted, then people started coming out to say, okay, let's just pay attention. Maybe there's something happening here. Usually you find that when things are gaining steam, like Me Too and all of the different movements, people want to be identified with it, not because they really believe in the cause, but because it makes them look good. We're very cautious of the politics that we're playing. So first thing first, if you want to support us, be prepared to know that we're not going to make any public declaration of your support. Some of the men who came to help, one was the Archbishop of the Catholic Church, His Grace. He died a few years ago, Michael Francis. This was a man who was very critical of the Taylor's government. But this was someone who believed so firmly in social justice. And he was like, if this is the time for the women, we'll give them all of the support we need. At that time, there was another imam who wasn't even the chief imam of Liberia. He just ran a mocks and he was also one of our fiercest supporters. He was like, I'm there for you. Or if you need me, there were days he would come and say prayers. And there were, if ever there were propaganda in the news about Muslim women joining us, he was on the radio the next morning, countering that with it. We also have people like ordinary men who just come and say, thank you for the work. People bring water when we're protesting. But you also had a situation in our country where since we were women, it was difficult for them to open fire on us to say we had guns. Men being a part of our movement would have made it to seem as a military subversive, all kinds of, so we also had that at our favor. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. For less than $2 a week, not only can you help us continue to interview experts week after week, but also join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Visit project-syndicate.org to learn more. There have been many peace accords and ceasefires that have marginalized women or completely left them out of the process. And when I take a look at the peace talks that the Trump administration is engaging with Afghanistan's Taliban, for example, they've largely excluded women. What does peace look like when women aren't involved? Well, it's just like you covering your one eye and trying to see the full picture of this whole room. I mean, you're going to miss some peace. So having a peace process with all women is like trying to see a full picture of one eye cover. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you miss the important part of peace. So why do we go to wars in the first place? We go to wars when people are dissatisfied, on the, are dissatisfied based on their needs, needs that we want to use, the human security need your need to go to school, the need for you to go to the hospital, the need for food, the, all of those things, even just that need for you to feel like a human that was created. People go to war because there is this feeling of we're marginalized, we're ostracized. So if these are the reasons why wars are fought, why would you want to wars, why would you want to build peace on exclusion when the genesis of war is exclusion? 
That's the second thing. The third thing is that when women come into peace processes, they do not come with their egos. They do not come with looking for positions of authorities and jobs. Women come thinking, how do we rebuild schools? How do we get the health system working again? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying women are better than men. Women are more thoughtful on those issues, you know? So when they come, they come with the human dimension of conflict. And if you look at the way peace is done in the world today, you recognize that all of our peace processes have left out a key part, the human dimension. Did you have any roadmaps or previous examples from which you modeled your movement? So definitely not. I had read about Dr. King and about Mahatma Gandhi and Mandela. As a matter of fact, uh, Mandela's ANC, the African National Congress movement, was embedded in my childhood because I went to a church as a child, the St. Peter's Lutheran Church, that was part of the Africa or Africa Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches. And every month there was a Sunday that we had to collect offering for relief for the South African people. And there were prayers that had to be said for Mandela's release and for the... So growing up from the age of eight going, that was part of my socialization. So, but when we started, we knew things that we did not want to do. We didn't want to be very close to the powers that be because those who had tried to build peace women, they started nicely and then eventually became very close to either this government or this fashion or that. And we knew that we didn't um, want to do that in the work that we're doing. Now let me reiterate. Let nobody have any concerns about will President Taylor step down? I will step down. Charles Taylor resigned in 2003. And then Ellen Johnson Sirleaf won the presidential election and became the first elected female head of state in Africa. Consequently, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, having received more than 50% of the valuables cast on November 8th, is hereby declared the winner of the presidential election. Very pleased. I'm thankful to the Liberian people. I'm excited, but I'm also humbled by the awesome challenges that uh, we'll be facing. Why was the moment right for a female president? I think the way I describe it is that our work was almost like we were in a kitchen um, trying to bake a cake. So everything that we put into that, the ingredients, and then peace based on the work that we did piece based on our contribution was taking that cake out of the oven. And then Ellen's election was the icing that we needed. For the first time in the history of Liberia, women had come out into to defy public space, not for one month, not for two months, for months. That was the first thing. The second thing was that um, for the first time, there were more women registered to vote than men. So all of the work that we did really just pointed to this is the moment for us to capture. And we didn't see it during the first round of elections in 2005. But when it came down to George Weir, who is now president, and President Sirleaf, it became. And then one female artist made a song. And that song is called Oba. And it's called Woman. This is your time. That was all we needed to go crazy. 
So many other countries, including the United States, have yet to see a woman in charge. How do we pave the way for that? I think mentorship, mentorship of the next generation. I mean, not just, I'm not saying that our generation is done. We can make the push, but we need to also do that. But there's another thing that I'm going to say, and definitely will will get some little backlash. I'm not one of those women who feel like women are their own enemies. You know, people tend to say that we are our worst enemy, all of that. No, I believe in the sister. I believe in feminism. No if, no buts, no however. That's how I describe myself. But I think for us to persistently say we want women at the helm of power is for us to say beyond the way she wears her hair, beyond the way she smirks, beyond the way she carries herself. Is she intelligent enough to carry this job? Yes. Can we trust her with our nation? Yes. Can we trust her with our resources? Yes. Let's vote for her. Because sometimes I feel like the electorates, women electorates, tend to focus so much on the things that are not necessary for the running of a country. You know, no one questioned the color of the hair of a male politician or his skin tone or his social life or all of the different things. But once it comes down to a woman wanting to step into that sphere, then you have all these questions and primarily rising up for women that are supposed to be the key backer of that person. And and I think for us to get to that place is for us now to start, you know, we always talk about the old boys network. It's time for us to really rally the old girls network. Celebration and relief often follow peace agreements, but extended conflicts don't really end overnight. And the longer they go on, as you well know, the more likely they are to recur. Once a peace has been won, how do we sustain it? Most times in many societies, when peace have been won, people tend to toast and then they go right back to doing the things that they're doing. To sustain the peace, you need to have a group of people who become the mirror of society. You know, so back in Liberia, we have this um, thing that we do now regularly called sustaining the peace. And what we do is to basically remind not just our generation, but the younger generation who have no inkling of the sufferings that we went through, that this was our history. They didn't have to fight for anything. They got it on a silver platter. So then it became very easy for them to take it for granted. So this generation that is seeing the mismanagement of our resources, the corruption, everything, they're angry. And maybe that is the generation that we can, those of us who have a vision, can now tap into to change the course of our continent. So the way to sustain the peace is to come back to the young people who never saw war and say, this is what we went through. This is how we suffered. And so that is how you sustain the peace. Remember the past. Look at your present and think about where you want to go. But most times in the histories of our nation, in the history of our people, we never really take our young people back to the past. So let me make one more point and, and, and stop there. Most times when you read, if you go and search feminism and the relevance of feminism today, you see that feminism, most young people will write feminism is not relevant in the Western world. Um, I used to read that a lot before Trump. Now it's changing. But people can make those kinds of statements 
in this part of the world and in parts of Europe because they don't understand that 50 years ago, not too long ago, you couldn't be pregnant as a woman and be a teacher. So what has happened is that they've stepped into the rights, stepped into like the inherited stuff that they did not have to fight for. And because no one has sat them down, young people, young women down, to tell them the story of the struggle for them to be able to be pregnant and to be able to be, so they take it for granted. And so even with us in Liberia, we say it's time for us to begin to tell our story of the movement to young women and to young girls and to say this is how we suffered so that they too can never take peace for granted. Lema, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? The younger generation. I was in Texas once at this very fancy Houston. Fancy home, a lot of wealth and affluence. And this young girl came to me and said, Miss Bowie, when you come to places like these, are you amazed by the big buildings? And I said, no. I don't usually look up. I look down. I'm amazed by the misery and the poverty at the, beneath those big buildings. Having said that, when I walk around now, even though I'm looking for the misery, looking at the misery and the poverty I'm looking for, but I'm also looking for that glimmer of hope. And one of the glimmer of hopes that I saw once is I'm walking down Manhattan, going for a meeting, I'm late. And I see these three black boys go into a nail salon. Something about that was not right. So I stopped and followed them. Something in me said, follow them. I walk and follow them. They came out with a pair of flip-flops in their hand. I'm going left, they're going right. I follow them. We get to where they're going. They have no clue I'm following. There's an old white man hunched over fighting to move from point A to point B and his flip-flops were broken. And those boys bought him a pair of flip-flops and handed it to him. When I saw that, the first thing that came to mind in this day and age where racism is so high, where there's this whole conversation about black lives and all kinds of things and the death of young black men, these are three black men who is helping a pure white. The next question that came to mind is, how many of us passed that old man without even noticing his struggle? I ran to those boys and hugged them and they were like, whoa. It was like, go back and tell your mothers that they raised very good young men. That's the hope. And it's everywhere in New York, in California, in Liberia, in South Africa, in the Arab world, everywhere. You just have to look very well. Lema, thank you. You're welcome. I survived. <laughs> that was great, thank you. That was Lema Bowie. She is founder and president of Bowie Peace Foundation Africa and the 2011 recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. 
Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunna. 